0: You're listening to the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. On the show today, I had Ben Eltham join me to talk about federal politics. Then, Linda Jakobsen, founding director and CEO of China Matters, joined me to talk about her article in the launch edition of Australian Foreign Affairs called, What Does China Want? Xi Jinping and the Path to Greatness. Then, Professor Brendan Wintle, a professor in conservation ecology at the University of Melbourne, joined me in the studio to talk about the fact that habitat loss is the number one threat to Australia's flora and fauna. And then finally, actor Joe Petruzzi from Red Stitch Actors Theatre came in to talk to me about his performance in American Song, a play written by Joanna Murray-Smith and directed by Tom Healy. As promised, we are talking about federal politics with uh, National Affairs Correspondent from New Matilda, Mr. Ben Eltham.
1: Hello, Amy. Hello.
0: Good, good. How are you? Yeah, really well, thank you. Welcome back from Tasmania.
1: Yeah, just had a few days in Tasmania for the Undisciplined Conference. It's a bunch of creatives and cultural types down there. That was fantastic.
0: Yeah. Well, you are pretty undisciplined, Ben.
1: I'm uh, extremely undisciplined, (laughs) there's no doubt about that.
0: I mean it in a lovely way. Yes, yes,
1: indeed. Unruly, I like to think. Yeah, Yeah, just a little bit eccentric. Uh, Yeah, I've been accused of that, indeed.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Good times. And I think you really need to be when we're talking about federal politics because it's constantly entertaining and very undisciplined itself.
1: Yes, it's a a bit of a rolling train wreck as ever with federal politics at the moment. We've... um, Uh, the government's energy policy rolling out last week uh, to pretty much universal criticism and then also the Four Corners episode last night detailing the train wreck that is the National Broadband Mm. Network.
0: Well, we heard uh, this morning, or at least I did, Scott Morrison talking about uh, cleaning up Labour's mess. It's all Labour's mess, particularly the NBN is Labour's mess, apparently, because, you know, fibre to uh, the premises was uh, the ideal to make sure that everyone had, uh, you know, the fastest connection right into their home, not at the end of their street, but into their home. And then uh, Tony Abbott employed uh, our current Prime Minister, but then Communications Minister Malcolm Turnbull, to ruin that idea and go back to a combination of copper and fibre to the node at the end of streets. So, I mean, really, is it Labor's mess, Ben?
1: No. No, Amy, it's not Labor's mess. It's fundamentally Malcolm Turnbull's mess. It's he who created and implemented this policy, the so-called multi-technology mix. Uh, Australia was tracking towards uh, world's best national broadband network yes it was going to be expensive but it was future proofed it had the best technology it was fibre it was going to be a brand new build out that would last Australia well into this century The government got rid of all of that when they moved into power in 2013, and they moved to a sort of jury-rigged system with a bit of copper here, some fibre to the node there, um, a little bit of old cable here and there, um, and even a little bit of wireless. And um, unfortunately, it's a second-best network. Um, And because of that, uh, it's suffered all sorts of cost blowouts, a whole bunch of technical challenges. It's not making money uh, and it's, you know, fundamentally not the, you know, the new network of fibre that we need in Australia if we're going to be competitive in the 21st century. So, it's a a tragedy actually of public policy in Australia, the NBN, what's happened since 2013. And the really sad thing is that everyone warned the government that this would happen if they went down this road and uh, Malcolm Turnbull uh, decided that that's not what he was going to do.
0: Indeed, and, uh, and it really the NBN was supposed to be a very long-term investment in infrastructure. It's now being treated as a business, but the business is failing. Um, you know, is that part of the problem?
1: I think it is fundamentally. I mean, that was part of Labor's plan was to create a business that was publicly owned and then sell it off down the track. I think that was always a bad idea, and I think that model, I think, Labor can bear some blame for, but the government's decision to treat the NBN as some kind of profit centre, some kind of business enterprise, I think is a fundamentally dumb idea because it's infrastructure. You know, it's a little bit like treating our electricity system as a business. You know, what happens there is the customers tend to get gouged, and that's what's happening with the NBN. You know, the, the product is inferior in many cases. The complaints are rising Uh, It's not making money because in many cases it's not offering people the service that they want. Um, uh, We know that very fast wireless is coming. Mm. um, And, you know, the old NBN of fibre to the premises would have competed comfortably against wireless because it would have had bandwidth that was essentially um, infinitely scalable, you know. Fibre had just heaps and heaps of bandwidth. But for the poor old people on copper now, uh, which are taking their NBN down the, the old copper lines to some kind of, uh, you know, curb-top box, you know, (laughs) that needs a whole bunch of power, is vulnerable to the weather... Uh, that is a second-best solution. And and so this is one of the reasons why this business is going to run into trouble, I Mm. think.
0: Well, the essential difference is Labor would have invested the money required to ensure that the technology that was created would be sustainable in the long term and would weather any of those other technological developments because we all know that fibre is the technology of now and the future. So, uh, you know, going back to something like a mix and particularly copper is very ridiculous
1: yeah as i say it's just a, a real crying shame you know and what we've ended up with i think is the worst of both worlds you know in, in a way it would almost have been better if the government had just not done mm. anything at all and let the private sector take the lead now the risk of that would have been this sort of what we had in the old days with telstra sort of controlling everything and retarding innovation and and basically acting like a monopolist but um you know, we, 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 we probably have that anyway now with the NBN talking about trying to regulate to stop competitors. Um, it's still not the best technical solution and it's not giving us the productivity growth that we'd hoped it would give. Australia's sliding down the international rankings for broadband speed. You know, this stuff is important. You know, more and more of the economy is digital, obviously. Uh, And the government has spent, by the way, a lot of money. So, you know, it's spent nearly as much as Labor would have spent for Mm. a a vastly inferior solution. Mm.
0: And one of the problems is if the NBN comes to your region, you have no choice but to take it up. You can't connect in to uh, ADSL if you have NBN available. So there's also that kind of restriction that if you have now inferior NBN, you still have to use it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And there's all sorts of problems at the ISP level where the ISPs are not buying enough bandwidth for their customers to give them that very fast broadband. Yeah. And that's got to do with the NBN's pricing model, basically, because they've decided that they need to make money back off this big public investment. They're basically pricing it at a level where the ISPs are not spending enough money. You know, now you can blame that on the ISPs or you can blame that on the NBN, uh, it doesn't really matter for the poor old consumer. They just want fast internet at an affordable price, and that's what they're not getting at the moment. And that's that's the failure of Malcolm Turnbull's policy in a nutshell.
0: Mm. And I mean, part of the discussion at the moment, or at least today, is going to be about productivity. You would think that the NBN would be a key element to increasing productivity, particularly for those who live in regional areas and are quite disconnected from uh, you know the internet even just basic things like being able to access websites, let alone stream anything. Uh, But Treasurer Scott Morrison is going to give a speech today and he's already been out talking about the issues around it uh, in relation to health, education and energy as being the crucial elements to boost national productivity and that's in response to an inquiry uh, that he commissioned by the Productivity Commission. So... It seems a bit odd because that's not necessarily something that uh, the a liberal government would necessarily put out as the top three uh, elements of increasing productivity, they'd often suggest that, that workers need to work harder, but uh, it's all about health education. That sounds a little bit labour, Ben.
1: Well, I think this is, uh, this is really about neoliberal solutions for health and education. So it is actually about making workers work harder just in those sectors, which are an increasing part of the economy as we become more advanced and a more service-focused economy. So uh, if you look at the Productivity Commission's report, which is a very large report and I haven't had a chance to go through in detail, but from my first look at it, it looks like the usual Productivity Commission spin, uh, a very neoclassical, neoliberal solution to economic reform. The idea that basically um, if we you know, let the market rip, if we impose more metrics, uh, more competition on everything, then that will drive productivity growth. Um, You know, this is a discredited agenda. We've been trying this stuff since the 80s. Uh, You know, increasingly there's fewer and fewer returns to this kind of neoliberal stuff. Uh, There's no doubt, of course, that Australia did reform our economy in the 80s and we got some very big productivity gains from that but uh, I question whether we'll get those kind of reforms um, from what the Productivity Commission is suggesting in health and education and let's also remember that um, one of the things about productivity reform is that uh, it it tends to mean that uh, you'll get more output for every unit of input that's what productivity growth is okay so one of the things that you'll get less of is fewer jobs. And actually, health and education are very job-rich industries. So productivity growth in health and education, particularly when the government's funding them, uh, doesn't necessarily mean a bigger economy. It generally just means a smaller workforce. And this is one of the paradoxes of economics when we're talking about the public sector. You know, the old sort of nostrums that the private sector does at best don't often apply.
0: No, and uh, he also talked in relation to workers' health about uh, the number of sick days that uh, workers will be taking for acute illnesses, not chronic illnesses, and perhaps suggesting that we need to be focusing more on fixing those so that uh, people don't take as much sickies. I mean, it seems like that's a little bit blame shift. I mean, how hard are Australians working nowadays?
1: Well, I mean, we work pretty hard and there's been plenty of productivity growth in the last couple of decades. One of the interesting things about that, of course, is it hasn't, it hasn't flowed through into higher wages for workers. It's actually flowed through into higher profits for companies. So, I mean, there's that problem right there. Um, the economists call it secular stagnation, by the way, and they're not quite sure what causes it. Ah, uh, the Marxists would say it's pretty obvious what's causing it—exploitative bosses. Uh, but you know, in the in the general, I am obviously supportive of Australia being healthier and of workers being healthier and and being less sick. So I don't think that's a problem per se. But I don't think it's the productivity panacea that the treasurer seems to be suggesting.
0: No, it's not. And uh, and why are we really? commissioning all these reports Ben I mean is this just a distraction from the fact that uh, the coalition really has no vision?
1: Well issuing reports is what the productivity commission does and if you look at its well, history. Ben
0: I'll just intervene though it is the treasurer who commissions them to create reports so it is politicians who ask for all of these documents to be produced and then ignored.
1: You are correct Amy and um, you are absolutely right to correct me there. So I'm just uh, being
0: cynical but <laughs> realistic.
1: Uh, you know look uh, government issuing reports well you know it's hardly news is it i mean government. well it
0: does create news though just yeah. just like today
1: i mean that's right i mean and so morrison's got a little bit of a splash on the front page of some of the newspapers with this so that's probably mission accomplished for him you know mm. whether he pushes on with these reforms in in substance uh, uh, you know as opposed to rhetoric is remains to be seen i mean one of the things that the productivity commission talks about is uh, education reform like talking about um reform in university. University funding. Now that sounds to a lot of us awfully like cuts to university funding. You know, which I would argue would probably be bad for productivity.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, it would be horrible. And uh, and there were reforms to be going through the Senate around university funding or defunding or changing funding, and that now uh, has been stopped.
1: Yeah, actually, that is a piece of really important news that happened last week. The yeah. Senate blocked the university cuts. So um, the government wanted to cut really substantial amounts, several billion dollars out of universities, and the Senate stopped them. So I think that's actually a big win for the higher education sector and there'll be a lot of vice chancellors and indeed a lot of students who are breathing a little bit easier after hearing that news.
0: Absolutely, they would. And uh, one of the other news items, which uh, may not be surprising but it is important, is that uh, the citizenship amendments and uh, qualification changes also were stopped by the Senate. And since that point last week, we've seen a huge spike in applications for Australian citizenship which has now reached about 118,000 applications.
1: Well, yes, Senate, again, doing its job and reviewing the government's legislation and in this case knocking it back. I mean, I think everyone agreed who'd looked at that legislation substantively, agreed that it was a bad law um, and that it needed to be struck down. Um, some very, very worrying changes that Peter Dutton had proposed in that bill. And I think this was just a victory for common sense. Like the idea that Australians need to have university-level English before they can become citizens, I think, is absurd and actually goes against the grain of what Australia has always been, Mm. uh, an immigrant nation.
0: Yes, and one of the other, uh, just quickly, developments at the moment is the wonderful time of Senate estimates. Yay! Uh, Very exciting for us, maybe for no one else, but (laughs) it definitely does reveal certain tensions between uh, politicians and the public service as well as ministers. And we did see yesterday uh, that uh, the head of the Immigration Department, Mike Pizzullo, uh, was testifying and apparently described that kind of uh, testimony or the experience of Senate estimates as torture.
1: Yes, well, I don't think he... If if he had maybe his time again, he may not have used the word torture Mm. in... uh, He was responding, of course, to allegations of torture, but then to make a joke about it, saying the real torture is appearing at Senate Estimates, I think, um, was very alarming, actually, because it comes from this guy, Mark Pizzullo, Uh, who is now an incredibly powerful figure in the federal bureaucracy as the uh, secretary of the Department of Immigration and Border Protection. He's really now in charge of this kind of mega department. It's going to get even bigger if Peter Dutton gets his much vaunted home affairs ministry up. So um, we all think that Pizzulo will be then made the secretary of that. It's basically, you know, a paramilitary. It's got the border force in it as well as obviously the immigration gulag with all of its associated offshore detention centres. And we know how many bad things have happened on Mike Pizzullo's watch. I mean, a man has been murdered. I mean, countless um, deaths in Australian custody, Um, all sorts of terrible things, Um, child rapes as... uh, as the uh, Human Rights Commission has detailed. Mm. Um, So for Mike Pizzullo to be making jokes about torture, I think really struck a lot of people as just off, just Mm. profoundly not cool, um, really flippant. And I think a a kind of illustration of just how toxic the politics of immigration has become inside Australia's bureaucracy, inside the the actual public service itself. And, And that's why people are worried.
0: Yep, yep, it is concerning and certainly uh, the distinction and separation between public servants and politicking should be maintained and certainly often they're being drawn into politics to the point where it's much further away from policy than it should be.
1: Yes, I mean I think Pizzulo represents a worrying Americanisation of the Australian public service where you've got a guy who is in a, in many cases sort of a politician himself so he's a former Labor staffer, believe it or not, worked in a number of Labor ministries um, as the kind of chief of staff to various Labor, famous Labor figures like Gareth Evans, for example, and then worked his way up the bureaucracy inside defense and then in immigration. And um, he's a combative personality. Um, he's he's uh, He's got a penchant for discipline. Um, he's known to rule his department with an iron fist. And, you know, many people think that he's crossed the line from public servant to unelected policymaker and I think that is worrying for the future of Australia's public service.
0: Yeah it's something that we certainly need to keep an eye on but also potentially do something about. But uh, Ben we can't solve Australia's problems in one segment unfortunately so we'll have to leave it there for today but (laughs) we'll pick it up again next week. Yeah
1: plenty of problems next week.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Thanks Ben. That was Ben Eltham from New Matilda and he joins me regularly to discuss federal politics. Yes, you are listening to 3 rrfm This is Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. And as mentioned uh, just before, we have the great pleasure to talk with a a very important and prominent expert on China. Uh, It is Linda Jacobson, and she is an author and she's also founding director and CEO of China Matters. She has written an article for uh, the very new, brand new, in fact, journal Australian Foreign Affairs, which is published by black ink and the title of the article is what does china want xi jinping and the path to greatness and what i love about linda's work is that uh, she offers a perspective that is very well informed uh, from the chinese perspective as well as from uh, an australian perspective and she's seeking to bring those two together Uh, so i'm very excited to have with me now linda on the phone hi there linda good morning good morning um thank you for writing this piece because i found it really fascinating and uh and really a unique perspective um because we do have a bit of a dominant narrative that runs through not only australian foreign affairs discussions around china but also even overseas and in america and a lot of that uh the theme or a thread that runs through that is a great fear of China. Um, It's often an opaque uh, nation and people are, really unsure as to how to approach China. Uh, But first I do want to make sure that uh, we cover off on one particular element that you mentioned at the start of your piece, which is that when we're talking about China, we need to be uh, clear as to what that means. So I'd first like to talk about that definition around when we're speaking about China in discussions about foreign affairs and foreign relations, what are we referring to?
2: Well uh, that's a really good place to start, Amy, because China can mean um, the People's Republic of China, that large nation with officially more than 1.3 billion people. It can mean the culture China, the civilization China, Zhonghua, which is a concept more than anything else, which reflects um, the, the very old um, culture and civilization of the Chinese people. And one can feel great Um, uh, emotional attachment to this Chinese civilization, whether one's a citizen of Indonesia, Canada, Australia, America, um, because one has that Chinese heritage. It doesn't mean that one um, feels that one is part of the People's Republic of China, the PRC.
0: Indeed, and so then there's also uh, the party itself that governs and rules china um which is the the cpc
2: yes exactly the um, communist party of china has been in power since 1949 like we know um it um over the last 35 years has overseen and led a miraculous transformation of a country which was poor Um, In part, of course, there are still parts of China which is poor, but mostly we can say that the CPC, the Communist Party of China, has overseen this dramatic rise in living standards, has uh, lifted over 300 million, they some say 400 million people out of poverty, and has um, also um, overseen a rise of a middle class, so that people own cars, they own a house, they give their kids a good education and they travel abroad and overseas on holidays.
0: Indeed. And in over history, uh, the approach about uh, the Chinese economy and how to rule uh, China has somewhat shifted and there were some um, really important leaders in that shift. Who do you think um, has played the greatest role in that transformation?
2: Uh, well, I... Um for all his uh, faults, and, and he was around during the Tiananmen incidents and oversaw the, the brutal crackdown of Tiananmen, Deng Xiaoping, without question in my mind, is the, the, the leader of the China's second revolution, like I like to say, the one that started in 1978 officially, when China embarked on a um, road of reform, of opening. Um, he had vision. He, he unleashed the energy of the Chinese people, um, let them work for themselves, for their own families, for their own prosperity, and, of course, for their country. He was a staunchly strong Communist Party leader. There's no doubt that he believed that the party must be in power, but he had a real vision for China.
0: Yes, indeed. And certainly um, that led to a great rise, not only in lifting people from poverty into the middle class, but then obviously increasing uh, a lot of China's um, citizens into millionaires and billionaires. Um, now... You say in your article that the Communist Party of China um, is desperate to instil in the citizenry a sense of its own indispensability. Now, um, given that they are the ruling party and haven't been, um, well, they've been in power for so many decades, why is it that they're so desperate to continue to reinforce their importance and um, that their oversight or rule is critical for stability?
2: Well, I think there's a fragility about the Communist Party power, which often is poorly understood um, outside of China. I think people inside of China realize that the people in power um, do um, have a sense of vulnerability. I like to say that the Chinese Communist Party leadership lives in a state of existential anxiety. They're always afraid, because they don't have elections where they test their popularity, where they test the support of the citizenry. They they are always worried that they're going to lose legitimacy. Um, this is a thread throughout Chinese political culture which goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, this uh, nearly obsession with legitimacy. And of course, um, if we think of modern day China, um, they have every right to be worried about staying in power. The Soviet Union example haunts them.
0: It does. And also I'm wondering whether the um, the fact that China has continually opened up its economy more and more to outside investment and also the proliferation of a lot of um, Western culture in terms of consumerism, whether that also uh, seems to add to the anxiety because of the external influences that are coming into China?
2: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, China is today such a transformed place if we Compare it to, uh, let's just say, 1987 when I moved to China and then spent 22 years living there. Um, in 1987, a person was so relia- reliant on the state. You couldn't get married without your boss's permission, and you worked for a state run unit, whether it was a school, a factory, or a government entity. Uh, you couldn't buy a train ticket without your boss's written permission. Uh, You certainly couldn't move house. You couldn't change your jobs. And people have personal freedom to do all of these things, marry whoever they please, um, travel abroad, buy houses, change jobs. And, of course, this multifaceted nature of society with all the incoming outside external influences um, certainly creates Um, tensions within society which at any given moment could um, explode into dissatisfaction with the leadership.
0: Indeed absolutely and one of the the things that I'm really interested in around um, how they've shaped, or at China, the Chinese leadership have shaped the discussion around its citizens and, and what the broader strategy is for this uh, country, is as you say, um, the China dream, which Xi Jinping has utilised as a slogan since 2012, uh, and that he was seeking, I guess, for an, another kind of renewal, such as uh, that that Deng Zhang, um, sorry, that the Former leader had done. Clearly, it won't possibly won't be on the same scale, um, given the different economic context that he was operating in. But has that changed? Has that evolved even in the latest uh, China Congress that we've seen?
2: No, you know Amy. this is a really interesting question, um, as I said, I thought Deng Xiaoping uh, will go down in modern Chinese history as the man who um, did revolutionize China in a in a very modern sense, but I think Xi Jinping does aspire to go down in history as another transformative leader um, he He wants to make sure that China is the leading nation of the world um, by the mid 21st century. So he, too, does seek that place in history as the transformative leader, just as Deng Xiaoping um, basically can be thanked for uh, bringing China out of poverty and stepping onto the global stage and taking the first steps as a really modern, large nation. So, I mean, I do think that Xi Jinping and his China dream, the rejuvenation of the great Chinese nation, um, is all about... um, China retaking its place at the center of the world as it was for centuries, uh, being respected for its great culture, its um, booming economy, um, for its uh, bureaucracy. Um, You know, once upon a time, the large Chinese empire was governed uh, with an intricate set of rules that really worked in this vast empire. So, I mean, they've, they've, they've been masters of the bureaucracy for quite some time. So I think Xi Jinping does aspire to all of that.
0: Indeed, and one of the uh, elements you mentioned there about history and China's place in the world historically, I mean, it was... uh, up there as being one of the most innovative nations, it had uh, it has still does have a very important um, culture and civilization and history uh, behind it that has influenced many Western nations, often without us realising um, that that those innovations have come from China. But then it did in the um, in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries, as you say, experience a great deal of humiliation. Um, and as you've said, it was the century of humiliation. I mean, could you share with us some of those feelings and why um, not only the Communist Party of China, but a lot of Chinese still hold on to that humiliation uh, even today?
2: Yes, and, and this is rather a complex um, topic and sort of a phenomenon which one has to understand. China um, was um, humiliated, subjugated um, by outsiders, mainly Japan and the Western powers for approximately 100 years. And there's no doubt um, that this sense of grievance that um, many, many Chinese people have um, is real and is based on fact. Now, in many countries, um, there are parts of history um, which are painful and um, which probably give rise to harboring ill feeling towards one's neighbors or the conquerors. But in most countries, um, this kind of a period is dealt with, um, studied, and one moves on. But the Chinese Communist Party, which, after all, is um, it's thanks to the Chinese Communist Party that, um, so to speak, China rose up, as Mao Zedong famously said on the 1st of October 1949, um, the Chinese Communist Party oversaw that rise from humiliation and wants to constantly remind Chinese citizens that if it wasn't for the party, China would not have ever risen out of that century of humiliation, and um, the Chinese Communist Party has vowed never to allow uh, the Chinese people to be subjugated and humiliated again. So so it's there's two narratives there. There is an absolutely genuine um factual narrative that the Chinese people did suffer horribly at the hands of foreigners for about a 100 years. But the fact that everywhere in today's People's Republic of China, you have a new museum exhibition, you have a new play, you have a new article, you have a new TV series, you even have a new theme park about the century of humiliation, you you are constantly reminded as a citizen of the People's Republic of China of that time when others oppressed China. Um, I don't think that is healthy, and obviously that leads to um, a certain kind of rather harsh nationalistic feeling, um, in my view.
0: Yes, and a lot of uh, the experiences of families during that time, um, you know, they still remember viscerally the violence that they suffered at the hands of particularly the Japanese and often that's yes. spoken about and it is quite horrific but as you say, they haven't really had that healing process and then it's uh, the, the wound is opened up all the time by uh, reminding the citizens about that, that period of time. Um, as you say, this inhibits the formation of a neutral view of other countries, so not just Japan but other nations um, that China interacts with, how do you think um, their concept of victimhood or humiliation then changes the way that they uh, relate to other countries surrounding them?
2: Well, there's, there's also a mixture there, you know. Um, on, on the one hand, of course, um, that lingering feeling that the others, the outsiders, are out to get us. Um, that certainly is one element on the other hand there's a keen keen curiosity um, desire to understand western culture western nations uh, a kind of a love hate relationship with the united states on the one hand um, obviously wishing to be looked upon always as an equal by others especially the united states but on the other hand there's great admiration uh, for for uh, much about the West and so on. So it, it is a great mixture. Now, it, within Asia, I would say as China rises, as China's power gets stronger, there is certainly a tendency among the people that I know and have known for the past couple, three decades now, that the rest of Asia should fall into line because the Chinese culture, after all, has always been the dominant culture in the minds of the Chinese people and and is somehow uh, slightly superior. So I think that is a problematic um, thinking um, among Chinese people. Now, the younger generation, obviously, Um, have their own thoughts. Um, The more international that China has become, the more interaction and engagement Chinese people have had, um, the less tendency there is to think like that. But certainly middle, mid-level carders uh, who I meet in the provinces, um, they have a superiority complex Towards their neighbours and an inferiority complex towards the West.
0: Mm, that's really interesting because you talk about and write that the Chinese Party, uh, sorry, the Communist Party of China, aspires uh, to as a nation lead Indo-Pacific Asia. Uh, but then there are these competing countries within that that region that obviously um, not, don't necessarily think that they will be the ones who eventually uh, lead the region. There's India, which is a great economic engine um, in that region. There's Japan, a great ally of America and even of Australia. And then there's obviously us who sometimes I think have we have a more inflated sense of self than, um, than our real role in the region. But in terms terms of China's rise in the Asia-Pacific, uh, how likely do you think it is that they will become you know, the, uh, the power and potentially even rival America's presence in the Asia-Pacific?
2: Well, Amy, as I write in that article in the Australian Foreign Affairs, um, I think India, Japan, um, China and the United States will all together... With their national interests and uh, display of power shape this region for many, many decades to come. In other words, India, Japan, and the United States will ensure that China will not just on a linear um, in, in a linear manner um, rise to be the dominant power in the region. There will be a lot of pushback. I mean obviously, by other countries too, the smaller Southeast Asian nations come to mind. Immediately, so it's it's going to be a question of give and take, pull and push, and it it it's really the outcome of that pull and push, give and take um, that will shape our region uh, politically um, and economically. Um, over the next half century.
0: Well, there's a great deal of pull and push at the moment between China and America in this region, and you highlight uh, the South China Seas as one example of that. I mean, how much um, of a tension is there at the moment in a military sense between China and America in this region, and where do you think that's going to
2: lead? Well, at the moment, uh, frankly speaking, military ties between the United States and China have developed over the last 15 years um, to a completely different level than they were a decade and a half ago. Um, There are regular talks between the two militaries. Um, At sea, they've been able to um, discuss and negotiate um, a code of conduct. Um, So there is contact, there is engagement, there are... um, Visits between the two um, navies and also um, other um, visits by military leaders. So it's not an absolutely confrontational relationship, but obviously there are tensions. And the biggest tensions arise in the maritime sphere, where China has, as we know, built artificial islands uh, on the top of reefs. Um, There's been um, extensive Um, transfer of military assets onto these artificial islands. Um, China looks upon this area as their territorial waters, or at least um, within their um, legitimate rights to build upon these islands. It a little bit depends on where we're talking about. There are several sets of islands. And um, the United States has for decades been the sole provider of security. Um, in the maritime sphere. So there is obviously um, going to be, in the years to come, um, a contest between the two, um, and one can only hope that they will learn to share power in the maritime space. Um, China has built, as I see it, it, for itself a buffer zone um, in the maritime sphere. It feels very vulnerable from the sea, um, all the invaders back during the century of humiliation came from the sea. And, and it's, in some sense, um, quite natural that they want this buffer zone um, for their own security and to protect their own national interests. Now, how this is going to play out in the next few decades, no one knows. I've always said that uh, the most profound question of our times is how China will use its power as its power grows.
0: Yes, and you do say that geography just defines destiny and as we know, Australia's vulnerability stems from our fear of abandonment, uh, which is a great reference to a book by Alan Gingell too, Um, but also, uh, and we did interview Alan, I think it was about four months ago on that. Uh, but then the, the Chinese strategic anxiety, you write, is shaped by a fear of encirclement. Um, and we have referenced that. But is that a fear of encirclement around not just America, but the other um, Asia-Pacific countries that are directly surrounding it and that uh, maritime element?
2: Absolutely. And, of course, the whole alliance system, it's not the United States alone, but all the allies of the United States um, and partners of the United States, um, if if, um, you think of this situation from China's point of view, it's it's certainly a vulnerable situation to have so many allies of the United States um, around it, and the fear of encirclement is always there, quite um, close under the skin, um, at least subconsciously affecting strategic thinkers in China.
0: Yes, and Australia is uh, an ally of America and obviously one of the ways we are is through the ANZUS Treaty uh, in a military sense, but talking about Australia's response to China and how we develop our foreign policy in relation to China, it has really been quite fraught uh, and the discussions that we tend to be having to me seem rather unhealthy and often view uh, China as quite a negative um, element that they are pervasive and often under the radar in their influences on Australia through media, through culture, through international students. It seems like there is this an over-focus and perhaps even an exaggeration as to the influence of of China on Australia. I mean, how do you perceive the situation?
2: Um, I think I'm going to answer that in two ways. I'm going to go back to that question about fear that you mentioned, if you, um, if I may, yes. um, in the beginning. Um, I mean, China is such a large country; um, it's such a different country from our own. Um, it's also a very different culture than our own. Usually, the unknown evokes a certain degree of fear, especially when it's a huge country like China is. And then, on top of this. Um, the different culture, the different um, ethnicity, the, the hugeness of China. You, you have this one-party authoritarian state. Um, it's an opaque decision-making system. Um, there's no doubt about it that um, civil society has been repressed over the last five years during Xi Jinping. Um, there's no doubt that um, many civil liberties, which Australians hold dear, um, do not exist in China. So it, it's really a very difficult political entity to deal with, just generally speaking, um, for a number of reasons, size, difference, and then the political system. So when one takes that and then moves to China's uh, projection of power, but also its attempts, and I emphasize the word attempts, because we really don't know how much China, the People's Republic of China is influencing within Australian society but certainly the attempts to influence have increased, widened, deepened. Um, It's something obviously that um, Australians in my opinion should feel perhaps uneasy about. Though having said that, um most of what Australia Chinese excuse me most of what People's Republic of China officials do in this country is normal work that diplomats do in any country. They are promoting their own country. They want to obviously promote a positive image of this country and this is what diplomats the world over do. Um both consulate uh, officials and embassy officials. Um it's when the People's Republic of China um, ...encourage either their own citizens here, for example, students, or possibly Australian citizens of Chinese heritage to stick up for certain aspects, public, um, which Australia doesn't share views on, or possibly wants to stifle, for example, discussion of issues which the People's Republic of China would prefer not to have any discussion about, Tibetan independence, Falun Gong, uh, possible Taiwanese independence. There are, there are a host of issues which government officials representing the People's Republic of China do not want to discuss. They would rather not discuss them. And if one does, there's only one correct view in their view. So this this makes for a very complicated uh, relationship um, within Chinese, excuse me, within Australian society, and, and I think it's only going to increase that as a country like China gets bigger, it wants to exert its influence more, and, and we in Australia have to learn um, to manage um, this interaction, this engagement from the PRC in a much more rational and sensible way.
0: Yes, because as you say, Australians of Chinese heritage today number approximately one million. So we have really close ties, not just uh, with, you know, the Ch- People's Republic of China and uh, the leadership, but also particularly the citizens who have come across to Australia to live here, um, sometimes temporarily, but sometimes permanently. Uh, there needs to be a greater understanding um, between us of uh, our cultures and appreciation and, and sharing. In terms of um, the the current foreign policy and, uh, I guess, the rhetoric that Australia uses officially from politicians such as Malcolm Turnbull towards China, do you think that has uh, changed at all since Donald Trump has become President of America? Hmm,
2: that's a good question. Um, have we seen exactly in the last 11 months a change in rhetoric? Um, in some senses, I think um, there's been a slightly... Um, more uh, clear articulation by Australian government ministers um, of Australia's need to um, look out for its own national interests and attempt to emphasize that um, freedom of navigation is in the interest of Australia, not only in the in- interest of our alliance partner, the United States. Um, there's been a tendency to um, try and emphasize that part of it but otherwise I wouldn't say that there's been a marked or clear difference or change excuse me in Australia's policy towards um, China or the region um, following the Trump election. Um, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull did make quite a um, clear uh, statement on North Korea Um, but um, I, I don't I I don't put it in the context of that this was a result of Donald Trump taking over the White House.
0: No, it did seem to me a little bit hawkish, uh, than, more hawkish than usual, at least uh, his comments on North Korea. Um, obviously, China having close relationships and leverage with North Korea is an important uh, dynamic in our region. So certainly, I know that's been a focus for America and Australia in terms of reining them in. Um, but I just want to focus one on one area finally. Um, you talk about a beautiful China in relation to the China Dream which uh, was Xi Jinping's policy platform and last week uh, we interviewed uh, James Thornton who is the CEO of Client Earth uh, which is a law firm that seeks to represent the earth Um, and James was invited to come into China and help set up China's environmental courts and I was just interested in his mentioning of China really focusing on creating an ecological civilization where the environment um, and considerations around the environment are an important factor in all policy decision making. And I just wondered what your perspective was on that and how much you think China is taking the environment seriously.
2: Um, China takes environmental protection extremely seriously. Um, I did quite a lot of work on climate change issues, China's policies, uh, climate change policies um, in the years leading up to Copenhagen, um, and so I was still living at that time in China. I moved to Sydney in 2011. So, um, approximately 2007 to 2011, I was I was quite focused on climate change issues. And it's remarkable um, how little outside China is known about the fact that the Chinese government, um, especially the the national government. Um, and has had to sometimes really impose its will on local governments who have been less willing to implement environmentally friendly policies um, due to just that it costs money and and the economic um, burden that it imposes on local governments. but the national government has been aware for at least two thousand uh, at least ten years if not fifteen years of how important it is. Um, for the well-being of the Chinese people, but of course also for economic reasons to um, protect the environment, do its utmost to promote renewable energy. Um, China is already one of the leading nations in solar, for example, um, energy. And and generally speaking, one of the push to promote environmental awareness um, in China has been from the people, Um, People have protested when uh, a polluting chemical plant um, um, is next door. There have been protests all over China um, about um, environmental degradation, um, corrupt officials not abiding by environmental laws, and so on. So this has been both from the national government, from the top down, but also from the bottom up, um, a keen awareness of the quality of life depends on us protecting the environment. Um, so I do think that in China, generally speaking, um, just over the course of, it's, it's quite phenomenal, 15 years, a uh, huge awareness um, um, has been sort of instilled in people uh, living, especially in the urban areas. But I suppose uh, it'll trickle um, into the countryside too.
0: That's really excellent to hear and heartening to see that in some ways China is leading other nations on um, having a holistic approach to environmental policy uh, and not just seeing it as some kind of separate area that one needs to take care of uh, as opposed to integrating it into economic considerations as well. Um, Linda, thank you so much for spending your time and sharing your great expertise and insights with us. It's been an absolute pleasure to hear from you. Thank you. That was Linda Jakobsen, and she is an author and founding director and CEO of China Matters. She's also uh, co-written a book entitled China Matters, which is out through Black Ink. And for our discussion, we've been referring to an excellent article Linda has written called What Does China Want? Xi Jinping and the Path to Greatness. And it is published in the new Australian Foreign Affairs Journal, which is out also through Black. Ink, so do check that out. There's uh, some excellent essays in that uh, debut. Uh, edition and including an, a conversation with the great Paul Keating and an article there from uh, George Megalogenes, who we had on the show only two weeks ago. So, I uh, highly recommend having a look at that. Yes, you're listening to 3 Triple RFM. This is Uncommon Sense with me, Amy, and I have with me in the studio uh, a very special guest, Professor Brendan Wintle, who is a Professor of Conservation Ecology at the University of Melbourne. He does some really important research and uh, he's written an article for The Conversation and it's titled, Let's Get This Straight, Habitat Loss is the Number One Threat to Australia's Species. Hi Brendan. Hi Amy, thanks Thanks, for having me. Well it's great to have you in and um, I mean I'm just having a great time doing this show because I get to meet so many intelligent and passionate scientists and academics in this area, uh, including um, Professor David Lindenmeyer who's a quite a regular now on this show. And I know you've co-published some um, works with him as well. So it's great to have you here to talk about this very particularly important issue that has really arisen from uh, an interview that occurred a couple of weeks ago. Um, and it's not just about the interview, but it has sparked a bit of debate and discussion around the importance uh, and concerns around land clearing contributing to habitat loss for Australia's species particularly those that are threatened and endangered so let's just talk a little bit about um, what was raised in this this interview we know that uh, Australia federally has a threatened species commissioner and they're currently recruiting for the next commissioner at the moment. Uh, but this commissioner isn't necessarily a commissioner like Gillian Triggs was a commissioner for human rights. Um, this commissioner is a bit closer to uh, the government and its policies. And it doesn't necessarily have the same level of independence and ability to be critical of government policy. So it's set up in a way that is different nat- naturally from um what we might perceive to be a role of a commissioner. But uh, Gregory Andrews, who is the current and outgoing Threatened Species Commissioner, uh, spoke on ABC Radio about uh, land clearing not being the number one threat to Australia's species, and we're talking about uh, plants and also animals. He was suggesting that feral cats were a huge issue and that they were really the core issue that uh, that we should be focusing our resources on could you share a bit more about um that focus on feral cats and what the science um, is around that and why he perhaps suggested that that was really important
3: yeah no, they're good points and look gregory did, he, first of all, he's the outgone commissioner.
0: Uh, right, so he's just finished gone out. Up in
3: the uh, in that role and there's a, a new commissioner coming on soon. We don't know who it is. Mm. Um, but his comments about feral predators particularly and, and invasive species in general uh, were sensible. They are a really big threat to Australia's biodiversity and a lot of the things that we're focused on Uh, the cute things, the furry mammals and um, birds, they really are very highly threatened by uh, feral predators. We've um, had some recent studies come out of work in our our research hub, the National Environment Science Program Threatened Species Research Hub, uh, and that work has indicated that we lose about a million birds a day to feral cats. Uh, this is a huge impact. We lose three or four percent of native birds every year to feral cats alone, and that's not even including foxes uh, that are equally, if not more, damaging in the southern part of Australia. So it's a big problem. And so the commissioner uh, was was very focused on this problem in his role. I think it was probably a problem he felt he could do something about, and to his credit and to the credit of the, the Australian government departments, they've stimulated a lot of action, a lot of interest, a lot of new uh, knowledge and understanding about the impacts of thre- threatened impacts of feral predators, cats, well, and also domestic cats on yeah. um, native Australian animals. So, uh, to that extent, I. Um, I uh, sympathise with his decision to focus on that, that was something he felt he could do something about. Uh, that is something we can, um, we can do something about feral predators and so I, I thoroughly encourage anybody who's uh, working in this area to to continue to focus hard on uh, these these big problems that are impacting on our species. However, mm. we have uh, a long-term problem uh, with land clearing and habitat loss in general. So habitat loss includes land clearing and land clearing for agriculture and urban development is probably the number one form of habitat loss in this country. Um, however, there are other types of habitat loss. So when sea levels rise and they inundate parts of the... the um, the country, that is habitat loss. When you uh, you clear land and you get rise in the water table and the salt means that the plants and animals can no longer exist in those places, that is a form of habitat loss as well. So there's lots of really important types of habitat loss that aren't just land clearing, but land clearing is the number one. Um, land clearing and habitat loss in its various forms make all other threats worse by Causing uh, increasing pressure on animals and plants, uh, fragmenting their distributions so that small patches are lost, cut by cut, uh, and can't be. Even if they're restored, they can't necessarily be recolonised naturally because um, they're so fragmented. Um, So, so habitat loss I see as the sort of the underlying root cause of most of our problems. The reason why invasive plants and animals are so damaging i put that largely down to habitat loss although it is fair to say that cats and foxes are very damaging in many parts of australia where um, habitat is still in reasonably good condition
0: Mm. And one of the things I found shocking um, was recent reports that suggested Australia had the highest levels of land clearing in the developed world. Is that the case?
3: Yeah, look, the statistics are, um, they jump about every year, but we are definitely in the top ten land clearers uh, and it seems like we're the only um, developed world, we're the top developed world land clearer. Um, I think those statistics, whilst they raise people's attention to the issue, are um, not that important. What's important is, at the moment, we're losing about 300,000 hectares of native vegetation in Queensland alone every year. So that's back to extremely high levels uh, that we had in the early 1990s, before the Beattie government in Queensland uh, changed the laws around vegetation clearing. That Though, and that was a great study in the ability of um, legal instruments and regulation to actually affect change. We saw a, a dramatic decrease in habitat loss due to land clearing in Queensland after those laws mm-hmm. were instituted and uh, it was really only the Newman government um, abolishing those laws that saw it peak again. So, it, it you know, habitat loss and land clearing in particular is something we can do something about with the right political settings with the right political will we just have to and as part of our job is to raise awareness and try and generate the right um, social circumstances for us to get that kind of policy change both in the key states which i would say at the moment are queensland and new south wales but in other parts of Australia as well and we need action and leadership federally and that was part of our commentary about hoping that the next Threatened Species Commissioner might focus some more effort on trying to Raise the profile of land clearing and habitat loss as a key threat to threatened species.
0: Mm, It seems like it needs a coordinated approach that this is something that all states should be joining together on. I know Mm. that's really difficult. Of course. Uh, But you did mention the Newman government. The Palaszczuk government has since come to power and has been around for a few years now. What have they done about the issue of land clearing in Queensland?
3: At the moment, not much. Uh, We've... There was a tight political debate um, about a year ago around potential changes to um, the vegetation laws in Queensland. That didn't go our way. Um, the laws are currently still very weak and that's why we're seeing those that very, that very high levels of land clearing in Queensland. I suspect it, certainly the, um, the word is that they might take something a little stronger to the next election. So mm-hmm. fingers crossed it's actually... Got the teeth that the BD reforms had, and uh, that they get up on that basis, on that platform. Mm. That, uh, as we said in our conversation article, it's a very difficult space politically. And there are strong lobbies that make it hard for policymakers and governments to effect these sorts of changes that we need to see.
0: But yes. Well, we have seen that in Victoria around old-growth native forests and uh, in that discussion uh, and the articles around Queensland um, clearing, certainly old-growth native forests are included in that as, as an issue. Hmm. How much um, of an importance do those types of uh, habitats have for species, particularly the ones that are most threatened?
3: Look... Our most threatened species exist in a really diverse array of environments. Some of our most threatened species exist in environments that you would consider reasonably com- common, sort of arid shrublands. And uh, But many of the species do have very specific habitat requirements that are only found in particular types of environments, like old growth, mountain ash forest, for example. And just due to their nature, they rare in the landscape these sorts of environments so it's reasonable to suggest that where they exist they should be completely protected and i think this has been the argument especially around old growth forest in victoria and in other parts of australia that given that it is rare it takes 3 or 400 years to create um you just can't afford to lose any more of it we lost a lot of it due to land clearing and forestry and now we're losing a lot to changed fire regimes whatever we have left we should be protecting mm. staunchly and we should be thinking about how we're going to create the right situation for the regeneration of those types of environments in the future and that's a complicated land use planning problem
0: yes so. and and as you kind of intimate it can't be solved by throwing money at it you can't just chuck money there and hope that no. we'll get hundreds of year old forests just appear
3: yeah exactly <laughs> and this is the thing with land clearing you 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 could throw a lot of money at feral predators and actually make a bit of a dint if we if we spent ten times as much money as we current spend on on um, dealing with feral predators, we could actually make some pretty amazing places that are feral predator free, and we have some organisations like Australian Wildlife Conservancy that do exactly that. And they're about to build their biggest feral predator exclusion fence yet. Uh, it's a big area in uh, in central Australia at Newhaven uh-huh. Station. That kind of that kind of um, investment really works where you've got a threat that you can solve with technology and effort. You can't make old growth forest. You can't make uh, basalt plains grasslands. We're down to less than 1% of the pre-European extent of basalt plains grasslands in Victoria. These are the, the grasslands that exist on the western edge of Melbourne. You can't make it. Um, we don't even really know how. And this is one of the, mi- the big problems. It's a policy problem at the moment because we have an instrument called offsets and the idea of offsets is if you clear a bit of habitat, then you try and protect some habitat elsewhere that you think was going to be lost anyway, or you try and recreate some. The protecting habitat elsewhere guarantees or locks in a loss. If yeah. you if you try and create some, then that's great, except nobody really knows how to do it. So in many ways, the current offsetting policy is locking in loss with a feel-good um, vibe to it, and that's that's one of our main concerns. Yeah. Uh, in some ways, prior to offsetting, you felt the pain of habitat loss. It was a decision that someone made, usually at a very high level, to say that this development or this activity is so important to us as a society that we're prepared f- prepare to incur the cost of the loss of species and the loss of habitat. Um, and that had political consequences. Offsets seem to get you around that problem, um, but still you incur the loss. So, uh, so at the moment we have significant concerns about the ap- widespread application of offsets and it's going to get wider before it gets smaller, unfortunately.
0: Well, that's really shocking. When did that kind of policy change come about
3: it's been developing for um, about 15 years. Victoria was one of the first places to develop an offsetting policy and, and quite frankly when they developed it, while a lot of people were concerned about the way it could go, it wasn't actually a bad policy initially. There were lots of things that couldn't be offset. You couldn't offset habitat for an endangered species. You couldn't offset uh, a threatened or endangered Ecological community, but like a lot of these things, uh, the the rules and the strict application of those ideas started to slip and started to dilute to the point where now the Australian government uh, does have an offset scheme for uh, the loss of habitat of endangered species, and and um, this is a major uh, issue I think in in uh, conservation and land management in Australia that we have to deal with. So mm. it's tangled up with habitat loss and land clearing policy, we have to figure out a better mechanism than offsets, which is what we kind
0: of got at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so at a state level, the state government would have the power to reverse those kind of changes to the legislation. Of course, yeah.
3: yeah. So we, uh, in Australia, under um, the rules of federation, the states are the land managers. They set the laws around the management of their land, uh, which is good thing and a bad thing sometimes in Queensland I would say it's a bad thing at the moment but um, yeah exactly we could have new vegetation management regulations Uh, we could have a bolstered threatened species legislation in Victoria Mm. that um minimises and perhaps nearly zeros the loss of the remaining habitat for all of the species that are listed as endangered under the flora and fauna guarantee uh, or under the the federal legislation which is called the environment protection and biodiversity conservation act so yeah we could do we can do a lot better
0: we Um, can (laughs) and the flora and fauna guarantee act has been under review for quite a while and we're still waiting for the results of that review
3: that's right. We will be waiting a bit longer. Um, I don't think the really difficult decisions about how it's going to look have been taken yet. Uh, as we're still very much in the the early days of uh, the review of the of the of the FF and G uh, Act. So we'll mm. we'll see how that goes. Uh, ideally, it would be linked up with the native vegetation management and all of the other acts that that deal with uh, the management of land, basically, rather than sit aside as a, a separate little act that is easier to ignore so we'll see how we'll see how that that um review process goes
0: exactly and it is um as we've seen even when you have the flora and fauna guarantee act and you're required to create an action plan for certain species there's a huge backlog and um, often then the public service doesn't get around to creating them
3: that's right and and it was uh, the same federally as well um under the epbc act we had uh well, we have over 1,700 species listed. Very few of them actually have active um, recovery plans. And the, um, the government has been for a while trying to scale back the recovery plan process because they said it just didn't work. Well, it didn't work because they didn't resource um, the development of the recovery plans. That's mm. the problem. Uh, and at the moment, those recovery plans are... are um, not really doing their job but that's not the problem with recovery planning that's a problem with resourcing.
0: Yes exactly Mm. Um, and I want to draw our attention to a part of your article where you talk about the interaction of factors in terms of Mm. its threat to species because as you say um, you know feral uh, cats and other predators are a big and important part but if you um, destroy the habitat where perhaps an animal might be able to hide from a predator or Mm. escape a predator then that's going to become make that other element of feral cats and other predators more of a problem that's right. What are the other factors that are interacting with land clearing and mm. these other issues?
3: Yeah, well, multiple invasion by weeds um, changing in fire regimes is a big one for us, um, and this is a, a big deal, obviously not just for threatened species but also for um, people and their and their property in fire prone areas so basically um, the fragmentation of habitat changes the way fire impacts on many of these places and, and with increased fire um, increased fire frequency in fragmented habitats you've sort of got a, a double whammy a multiplicative of impact on endangered species because in the past if you imagine a sort of a, a pre-european landscape where you had a, a lot of habitat with um, high connectivity patchy fires would create holes in that that big mosaic of habitat um and animals and plants could easily migrate back into those areas as they become suitable again um however when patches are being burnt and they're very rare it can mm-hmm. take uh, a lot longer for those animals and plants to get back if they still exist enough in the landscape and of course those edges um and those gaps between the suitable habitat are the best places for weeds to develop or for um, feral predators to take their toll on native animals yeah so, so the processes interact very very seriously
0: And one of the things we've discussed uh, briefly here, the government's role and what they can be doing. But I Mm. know, and I mentioned off air, you went to a conference in Tasmania about private landholders Mm. and the importance of individuals who own and utilise private land that is highly valued and perhaps does uh, host a range of threatened species. Mm. What can individuals do and how can they play their part?
3: Yeah, that's a really good question. There are multiple ways that individuals who who own private land can help contribute to the conservation of threatened species. Of course, there are big organisations like Trust for Nature, um, Australian Wildlife Conservancy, uh, Bush Heritage Australia. These are organisations that invest in the conservation of um, threatened species and ecosystems by purchasing land or by helping support the management of those things on private land, other people's lands. Uh, the, The Trust also helps people if they have some rare and good quality habitat on their land they can protect it through conservation covenants mm-hmm. and they do a marvellous job in providing the support for people to to try and make the most um, of, of their land and, and protect it permanently mm-hmm. um beyond that i think land care and um Land for wildlife are great schemes that allow you to get involved um, at a community level to learn about how you can do the best by your um, native biodiversity in your in your plot and um, make a plan for how you're going to contribute to regional conservation and uh, so you know given that we are largely a private land country. Mm-hmm. Um, And we've lost, in Victoria, for example, 95% of private land has lost its natural vegetation. The bits that are left on private land are often the most important bits. They are often... More fertile, they're often on lower, flatter areas, which makes those types of ecosystems a bit different often to the ones that are in big national parks, and so it's crucial that these areas are protected because they mm. support animals and plants that often don't exist anywhere else in the landscape. Yeah so yes, yeah, I would re- very much encourage people with private land who either have something good or want to have something good um, to get involved in restoration uh, through land for wildlife or, um, or land care.
0: Exactly. It's not just about protecting what's left, but creating and generating in a strategic way um, what was before. Exactly. We we have
3: an extinction debt. In fact, people talk Mm. about extinction debt. Uh, There are species out there that are sort of the walking dead in a way. And unless we can create new areas of habitat that can support viable populations of those species, make them robust to invasive plants and animals, Mm. then we're going to lose a lot more species, even if we don't lose one more hectare of land.
0: Yeah. Mm. Brendan, it's just been wonderful to talk to you and so informative and empowering, I've got to say. Great. (laughs) So I hope that um, we can all take up the mantle and not just lobby our governments to be doing something about this Mm. and also empowering the Threatened Species Commissioner to be able to advocate Mm. about these issues, but then also to individually do something as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time. That was Professor Brendan Wintle who is a Professor of Conservation Ecology at the University of Melbourne and if you'd like to uh, look up the article we've discussed, it's called Let's Get This Straight, Habitat Loss is the Number One Threat to Australia's Species and Brendan is also on Twitter so you can check out our page because we link back to Brendan as well. And you are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple RFM with Amy Mullins. Uh, uh, I said before and I've, I'll say again, I went to the most amazing theatre show on Sunday night and uh, it's not just because I got to sit up with the lighting people, which was pretty cool, a bit of a novelty in itself. That's because the show has been sold out nearly every night and it's been naturally deserved of that level of um, interest and support so I'm really excited now to be joined by Joe Petruzzi who is the actor in this play it's uh, written by Joanna Murray-Smith, directed by Tom Healy and it's at Red Stitch Actors Theatre in St Kilda Hi Joe!
4: Uh, welcome, <laughs> it's great to be here thank you for having me.
0: Oh it's great to have you back I, I said at the top of the show that we had you in for Radiothon which was very fun yeah. um, because you know as you know I'm a big fan of Red Stitch and the work that you guys do and uh, certainly it's been such an amazing season this year just so many brilliant plays and uh, the first one that I saw uh, you were also in so that was great it was a really great political theatre show uh, this one does have political elements too but it's certainly not presented in a way that's overtly political it's very human So, And also, Joe, thank you for stepping away from rehearsals because you're also a very busy man, not only uh, performing every night in this show, but also rehearsing during the daytime for another show. So you're a very uh, versatile and talented actor.
4: Well, look, I'm very committed this year. It was my first year at Red Stitch, so I, uh, I, I enjoyed the benefit of being one of the ensemble members there, which is put your hand up and you get cast. And um, as you've identified, we've had an amazing year um, that's all been stewarded by our artistic director, Ella Caldwell, and um, it has really taken the company to a whole other other level in terms of the work we're doing, and uh, it's really exciting to be in the middle of it.
0: Yeah, it really, it's so creative and its it seems like you're at the heart of creating something entirely from scratch that is, it becomes a masterpiece really. And I think this particular play based on the ones that I've seen and I mean, they're all really great. Like the Moors was amazing. I mean, there's been so many great plays, but this one in terms of the acting that's involved and the commitment from you um, being, it's a its one to play and the the level of emotions that you experience Throughout this play, and that you maintain uh, the story and you keep the audience alongside you the whole time. I think that's a particularly challenging thing to do, but looks quite effortless.
4: Well, it's it's not. No, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) uh, It's the result of a lot of work um, from a uh, really, really what is a team. And, you know, people may well say it's a one man show, but it it is under the umbrella of um, Ella's artistic direction the ferocious eye of tom healy our director and the, the ever-present playwright joanna mm. murray smith so it, it comes off as a, a simple exercise but that simplicity is is the result of a lot of hard work
0: yeah and, and see, that's really true in terms of when i was watching it mm. The set uh, is its quite simple and the actions you're performing on stage are quite... It's ritualistic, like you're doing it, mm. uh, you know, the same thing not in exactly the same way. Um, You know, there's a wall and you're building this wall and you think that's quite a simple device but it adds such meaning to the text. So how, you know, when you were approaching this text by Joanna Murray-Smith, which was created for an American audience initially when it was commissioned uh, and it's about gun violence in America, how did you, I mean, look at this text just on the page at the beginning and then you know what were the steps I guess to get it to that point of you know creativity and and you engaging as an actor with Mm. this text
4: well the play came to us after a production at the Milwaukee Rep and it so it was already a a very well-seasoned play that had been thoroughly examined and Joanna had some very specific uh, ideas about what the relationship was between the wall that was being built on stage and the searching for the, the critical stone, which is what drives the, the drama in the play. Like, what is the thing I put in place which brought about the event that that becomes significant in, in this man's life? And he is forever examining all the parts of his life. Um, so... It um, it was already there. Was there wasn't a lot of, uh, in terms of restructuring that we had to do of that, but the relationship between each of the stones and there's 42 of them laid at critical points that all had to be memorised. They're all individual (laughs) rocks. (laughs) Do
0: you really remember each stone? Uh,
4: Absolutely. Wow. Because the the wall has to arrive at the end of the play. Completed
0: and it does, and it does. Yep.
4: and um, and th- that in itself is a whole other play. <laughs> <laughs> it sure is. Because um, I arrived with the words learnt, learnt yeah. thinking I'd achieve the major task. Yeah, but, but no. it wasn't.
0: So you have a good visual memory, then.
4: Well, it, it was really interesting, you know, yeah. because um, actors are very verbose people. Yes, uh, and it was it was choreography. Mm-hmm. Really, it was it was much more akin to what dancers do in terms of movement and and object association association and um so and that that was quite new for me it was really fantastic but it was amazing you know because uh, we're tremendously resourceful as actors we have Mm -hmm. to survive the event has to happen so (laughs) so, um (laughs) you dig deep and, and people come up with ideas as to how to help you get there but it it um it does provide a, a really interesting symbol that runs the journey of the story t- storytelling, and, and I think it's a it's a wonderful metaphor that Joanna has created, mm. and and leaves a very haunting quality for for the people who see the play. They go away and I, uh, take that structure into their own lives to some degree. And people have said this back to me, so I, yeah. I, I feel comfortable saying it mm. that um, it, 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 it causes a degree of examination of where you're at, what point and, and if you were confronted with a really life-altering event, you know, where how would you evaluate that and how would you deal with that in the context of this, the decisions you've made in your life?
0: Yeah, that's absolutely true because at the start of the play, uh, you know, you're talking about the beginnings of your relationship with mm. um, the person who becomes your wife, Amy, and, uh, and then, you know, you talk about her in a really, a way that is so fond and, um, you know, you're reminiscing about great moments but also really serious moments and moments of concern and drama and fear for your safety and Amy's safety. You know, you create a child together and you're talking about these really key important moments in in most humans' lives, you know, if they get married and if they have children and the father-in-law relationship and, you know, it is such a relatable play that, you know, you're taken on this journey for the first half of the play, which makes you feel like you're part of their life, really, mm. and you're kind of hoping that things will go well for them because you know it just feels so, yeah, heartening. It's like mm. an everyday situation, and it's a
4: universal life. Yeah, that, that you know, uh, we, they are the things that Andy talks about are all the things that we want to achieve. Are, are, a loving relationship, a beautiful home, children who we can relate to, who, who will respect us, who we can love. Um, and as, as we tick all these boxes and, and assess the total outcome of our life, you then have to wonder, well, if something tragic happens, then was that avoidable? And mm. did we trade that off for some decision somewhere down the line? The potential to alter that, um, and and that's the haunting thing. Yes, in, in the play.
0: And Andy is not faultless. He certainly has made a couple of decisions which <laughs> mistakes. were mistakes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> mistakes. Very serious
4: mistakes. And he acknowledges that because yeah. it, what becomes evident is that he has examined all of this to consider mm. the uh, the consequence of of the, those mistakes, um, and that and that really is. I think the thing about Joanna's play that struck me was the humanity in it, that it's it's not pristine, it's not a, a melodrama in the sense that this was a faultless man who a terrible thing happened to. He was a flawed man, as mm. we all are. Exactly. <laughs> you know, we un- we all carry our mistakes, mm. as well as our achievements. And, um, and that's where it resonated so strongly for me, that a person can do most things right and still
0: yeah yeah it's be- and he's very self-reflective mm-hmm. you know I mean not everyone gets to the point where they've examined all of those things in such detail and then you know and mm-hmm. recounts them and then can still I mean he, he still comes up and not quite knowing really what it was really.
4: absolutely be- yeah. because it's unresolvable exactly you know. um, we we don't know what the sliding doors and the alternate paths would have led us to, yeah. but um, certainly he, you know, th- this issue of questioning yourself is, is quite, quite um, torturous. Yeah, and um, a, 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 and that's what Joanna has has shown in the play. You know,
0: I think. And one of the – that reminds me of – I can't remember – well, obviously you'll remember the lines, but <laughs> uh, when you were really talking about those sliding door moments and if I hadn't done this, I wouldn't have met this person and, you know, if this wouldn't have happened, that wouldn't have happened. And that was a really great point, I think. I,
4: look, and that, that was – the that paragraph, if yeah. I had to single out a single paragraph, the idea that we make decisions – And we invest a tremendous amount of time and effort in making good decisions. Mm. But in actual fact, they're not the things that dictate the course of our life. Our lives are actually dictated by the chance cup of coffee that you might have picked up and you met someone in that cafe that took you on a completely different direction in your life. The casualness of that decision to step across that threshold into that cafe may well have taken you Somewhere where all the amount of deliberation would never have placed you. And that, uh, I found, is is the absolute haunting Mm. thing of the play.
0: Yeah, it's those small moments that you're not even aware are happening. No,
4: the casualness with which you go, I'll go here. Yeah. And that's it your life is off in another direction.
0: Yeah, indeed. And then, I mean, you've you've got the relationship with Amy and that runs through the whole play. And as parents then, that's another element. It's not just the romantic relationship and the life partnership, but then as parents, how you interact with each other, but also with your son, Robbie. Yep. So, then as a parent, I mean, what do you find, because this is really, I don't want to give anything away, <laughs> but this is kind of really critical to the play. Absolutely. Um, you know, yeah. your relationship as a father and also the, as a role model potentially as a father?
4: Yeah, exactly. it um, The play focuses on an event that happens in the family that's controlled ultimately by the decisions of, of a teenage boy. Yeah and it it 's a big event in in anybody 's life i, I don 't want to reveal no, what no. it is there 's yeah. somebody who 's going to pay go good money see for, <laughs> to see it so yeah, I, yeah. as that, as the play unfolds, that event becomes apparent mm. but um, you have to evaluate i I have a fourteen year old son and um, he was he was very cool about it all and, yeah um, but it, it was interesting. To to run the journey of of that play with with the potential of it, um, you know, having consequence in your life, and you have mm. to examine continuously the kind of thing that you are setting up. And I think particularly between fathers and sons, because the, um, the, there is a tremendous responsibility to to defining what it is to be a man mm. and and what the values of that are. Um, particularly in a society that's shifting all the time and where where you have responsibilities to 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 really defining what a good man is um so i, I look i found that a very relevant issue and yep. and and um i th- i think joanna addressed that really directly in the play mm. uh, the kind of example the kind of values um between between all the genders and and particularly the, his capacity to evaluate where he failed as a man, mm. um, it, it, in in his relationship with Amy and in his relationship with his son, and 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 they're probably the more poignant remarks I, I think in terms of his the, the, the development of the character in the play is is the weaknesses in, in characters man in yeah. and his manhood.
0: yeah Yeah. and i mean in that masculinity that exists within andy and you know Mm. a lot of his decision making has the element of gender in it particularly he does um you know have relations with another woman um you know that's another element of american society but also here and i mean how he uh really realizes that no amy is the one for me still i mean you know often some the narrative will be, oh, I found someone, else. see you later. But, you know, he comes back.
4: Yeah. Uh, look, and that is an important element in the play in terms of the pressure that it brings into the family mm. and, and how the, his fear and the reason it's examined is that did this accelerate the problem in his son? Did his son lose respect for him? Did his son lose respect for the values he was teaching? Yep. And is that the outcome the event.
0: Mm, and how much was it confronted within the family? Exactly. As an issue. Um,
4: and, and it's also a wonderful device yeah. that Joanna uses because it, it increases the value of of Amy and how she responds to that mm. um, it, it, in the story. And, of course, we never meet Amy no. in, in the play, but everyone loves Amy. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> I have invested yeah. so much in making Amy. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm she straight, does
0: sound fabulous. Yeah, she,
4: Well, she is. Yeah, <laughs> she is.
0: She was an art history major, by the way. Mm. Yeah and also you you know you did demonstrate quite feminist qualities because as a father at the beginning of this child's life you were a hands-on parent and she was the one heading off to work
4: oh absolutely yes. yeah and and, that, and it was wonderful to talk about that because yeah. that's actually what i did
0: wow um, really yeah that's yeah
4: great. My, my wife returned to work after after her eight-month um maternity leave and and there i was in in yeah. the eastern suburbs of melbourne going oh my god <laughs> and and that was quite a journey mm. for a man who was not prepared to or certainly not trained up to do it no
0: and but, it, there it is somewhat alienating for oh, your character and potentially for other men oh
4: it, it, it was an extraordinary experience and yeah. and, and, and one that um really opened my eyes quite a bit. You know, I, I found myself standing there with all all the mothers in the school playground and and they were highly accomplished women. Yeah. Lawyers, journalists, all who had walked away from their professions to to do this caring for years, you know, and, and we, we, we <laughs> had quite a little coffee club going. Yeah,
2: yeah, right.
0: <laughs> I'm sure you would have picked up a lot of tips then perhaps from the other fast. mothers. Yeah. I learned fast. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's really great. And one of the things I found in terms of the richness of the text, was the way that you could paint a picture of a scene and feel like you, the audience was viewing it from your eyes. Like when um, you're talking, and you mention it twice, I think, this scene where you're out in the backyard and the sun is shining and your mm. son is sitting there on the grass and you and Amy are there looking out onto him and it seems like a really beautiful, important moment to you.
4: Well, th- this is a critical moment yeah. in, in, in the play um this is the moment on the on the steps where where Andy goes life is good mm. I'm on track yeah. and um, jo- Joanna Murray Smith has has really built th- this moment in into the structure of the play and the importance of identifying it yeah. of enjoying it and loving it because when the tragedy happens, that is the moment that he recalls yeah that is lost forever and um, so there, there, was a tremendous amount in the writing mm. that that allowed you to do it, and 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 what I found under Tom's direction was that the more the more you left things alone and just focused on the clarity of that image and how it was written, mm. um, the louder that that picture got, the the music in that picture got. You know, it it really was is. Quite an extraordinary piece of writing that Joanna has done, and we are are so blessed to have had the opportunity to do it at Red Stitch. And, um, and uh, I I, th- I think she's been pleased with the outcome. She's very hands on.
0: Really, yeah, that's she, great. She
4: was really present all throughout the rehearsal. Yeah, and um, and that's very intimidating. You know, yes, it sure is. Uh, yeah. But but in actual fact, it it it, beca- it became quite a resource for mm. me because she has a wonderful understanding of the process of handing over a play, which, you know, for any writer must be like giving over your your firstborn. But um, she was really clear with a lot of the the information that she gave in terms of how to view the play and how to approach things. And I found her input really valuable Mm. and really to the point. You know, in, and not in a way that was at all. Don't touch my play, or don't. You know, <laughs> um, it, uh, her contribution was really fantastic.
0: Yeah, so that that brings me to my next question because you mentioned the great team that is behind this play, and mm. you know, that's got Ella, it's got Tom, it's got Joanna, yourself, and I'm sure all the other oh, and,
4: and the other credit uh, Pat yeah. Cronin, whose wonderful sound soundtrack is just such a supporting thing throughout. It is, it, and, and uh, uh, our wonderful designer Daryl, who built the wall. Um,
0: yeah, which you know, is pretty important. You know, Bronwyn, our yeah. lighting
4: lady. There's there's a yeah. whole bunch of um, really, really talented people who've you know, worked so tirelessly for <laughs> such <laughs> little financial return.
0: <laughs> yeah, and that is the point. I mean, you have a, a wonderful group of people working together on this. How did you interact and collaborate On creating this Like how What were the dynamics In rehearsal When you went Okay Now we've got to You know Create the movement And the And the voice And the set Like how did it happen Well
4: this is largely Tom Tom Healy's work And Um I, I can't, I can't really speak to how he did that because that didn't happen in my presence. All, all I know is I was in the middle of suffering through enormous <laughs> stretching as an actor, yeah. uh, and most of the, and I just kept seeing all these people come in <laughs> <laughs> and sitting down taking notes, and then they'd come back with with bits of music or lighting uh, comp- uh, questions. Yeah. Um, so largely, the it was Tom who orchestrated. The, the drawing of all all these resources and and while I was sent away with bits of homework to do I know he was off with um, in various meetings with um, particularly he spent a lot of time with with the sound guy because it's a wonderful soundtrack that um, supports is, us and yeah. um, and um,
0: So he really gave you the space as an actor to oh, be no, able no, to grapple no, with it? No, or no, no,
4: no. He, 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 he was very specific yeah. about about what, what he was. What there, what there wasn't a lot of space. No, right. A, and um, a lot of the preconceptions that I had brought in about it had, had to be abandoned. Interesting. Yeah. It, yeah. It, and, so you and need that to made made be it, very
0: open, don't you, as well, an actor, to y- be yeah. that malleable?
4: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and that was a big challenge in first week because mm. with a big piece like that, you, you, you come in with a lot of stuff prepared yeah
1: if if you're smart you do
4: and um uh because it it at least provides a platform to start from Mm. and um it it was uh, a lot of that had to be let go of and that's a very scary thing
0: yeah and sometimes it's hard
4: yeah that Mm. you know particularly when you're on your own
0: exactly and how is that experience just out of curiosity
4: it's daunting yeah It, it, it is really um a, a terrifying thing that's coming at you mm. to to stand on a stage in front of an audience and I'm the show <laughs> but um and particularly for me because I've always been an actor that relies very heavily on my my peers mm. around me and, and and you mentioned the way things work earlier this year with, yeah. with the wonderful actor peter houghton who um who uh, and that was a, one of two two hands that I've done and he he was a, a ter- tremendous support to me mm. in that, and I, and I really didn't um, know how to do it. I had to learn it yep. in the rehearsal room, and it, um, yeah, it's it's gone well. I've yeah. been I've been taken care of.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it seems like what a great play to have that yeah. opportunity to develop that
4: yeah. experience, and you know, well, well, it was good writing, yeah. So, so that's um, that's a wonderful place to start.
0: Mm. You know? I mean. In terms of now looking forward, because you're about halfway through the season, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, There's a couple of weeks left. It closes uh, on the 5th of November. Yep. Couldn't you get a bit of an extension?
4: Could we like extend it a bit longer? <laughs> oh, well, we we have Desert uh, yeah. Six Twenty Nine coming. Which in. you're rehearsing? For. Which which we're currently. So that's um that they're not remotely interested in uh, a- any sort of extension <laughs> of American Song. They want the theatre vacated. Love get it. out. Yeah. So, but um,
0: I just want to go see it again. So Ameri-
4: well, personally, uh, look, uh, I, I I don't doubt that with the kind of clout that um, comes with Joanna Murray-Smith, that, mm. that there might already be some voices talking about a possible season and if that happens that, that that's a wonderful thing yeah you know? but um look you know it, it's one play in a season of eight that yeah. we've done so so we do need to clear, clear the floor and yeah yeah and, and, and move the, on to that's desert. the beauty of yeah. red
0: stitch isn't it because yep. you have such a full schedule yeah and it's constantly at such a high level of yep. quality that you know everyone's kind of
4: equal yeah and, and it's uh, an ensemble it's an ensemble, and you know uh, we're drawing from a really talented pool of people um the performances coming up in desert um uh, are staggeringly good yeah already and we're we're sort of we've into our third week of rehearsal now, but uh um, Eva Seymour and uh, Sarah Sutherland, who are, are playing mother and daughter <laughs> in the next one. See, and this is Ella. She balances yeah. fathers and sons, mothers and daughters. <laughs> All stories are told. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the, the, their work is, going, is already in, in a place that is staggeringly funny and, and beautiful. Oh, so, wonderful. Yeah, we're, we're really looking forward to that now.
0: And that will be happening about a week after you close? Uh,
4: yes, I'm not sure on the date. I haven't, yeah. I haven't brought that information no, with me, right. but about the 14th, I think, we, yeah. we kick off there.
0: And all the information is on the website?
4: Yes, absolutely, yeah. um, redstitch.net.au.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And more importantly, that's where you book tickets. So go online.
4: <laughs> yep. Uh, do get, it. get in there fast. There's You're a few better. left for American Song, but otherwise yeah. Desert is, is already taking bookings. Yeah, so.
0: exactly. So do make sure yeah. you book in, like, ASAP yeah. to see this um, because it's well worth seeing. And I really just say thank you, Joe, because it's just, it was so moving and fulfilling to sit through such an amazing theatre play and to have all of the right people involved. It just feels like it was a very special moment in time for anyone in that audience. So, oh, congratulations. Look,
4: it, thank you. Look, it's a very special moment in my career. Mm. You know, it's wonderful. So.
0: Thank you. Well, this is Joe Petruzzi, Joe, who's joined me in the studio uh, to talk about American Song by Joanna Murray-Smith, directed by Tom Healy, artistically directed by Ella Caldwell, and it's at Red Stitch Actors Theatre. Thank you so much, Joe. Thank you, Amy. As I said, Joe Petruzzi, is the actor of American Song, um, and it, it really is very special and uh, and... I go down and see it. I can't say anymore. I've lost my adjectives. There's nothing else to say. <laughs> so uh, better book in. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRFM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.